0: The great difficulty that most of us have with joy is that our lives don't appear very joyful. For many of you, it's joy, it's a brokenness that comes from out there somewhere. You might be living life and life may be seeming to go quite well for you and you might be encouraged and then out of nowhere, you end up falling flat on your face And you're you're hit right in the head with a brokenness that is so profound, so sudden, that you're left dizzy. It's not any fault of your own. It's not something that, that you've done. It's not something that you've brought upon yourself. Rather, it's the result of living amidst a broken world and living in a broken body. All of a sudden you have a a diagnosis in your health and all of your life you've been healthy, but now out of nowhere you are struck and you are struck ill. For you, maybe you come home one day and you're excited to come home and see your family, but when you walk in the door on that afternoon, when you walk in the door that evening, your husband lets you know that he's out. And the day that you walk home looking Encouragement, he walks out looking for a different life and you didn't see it coming. For some of you, you were pregnant and you had a baby that you already loved, you already had named, you were already treasuring, and then you miscarried. And you're left just picking up the pieces of your heart with a pain that is so personal and so private that you have difficulty even articulating it to anyone else, even your husband. And so when we talk about joy, joy seems like it's a long way off because your life isn't very joyful. Your circumstances aren't very good. For others of you, the the pain that you know and the difficulties that you're facing, it's not because of, of brokenness out there. Rather, it is brokenness in here. We don't just live in a broken world. We are ourselves quite profoundly broken. We are sinners desiring to sin, looking forward to sin, delighting in sin, and you find yourself sinning against God, walking in a way that you know brings displeasure to Him. You begin to pursue joy and satisfaction and and value and significance, not in Christ, not in your walk with God, but out there somewhere, in the job that you have, in the relationships that you can find, in the arms of another man or another woman. You begin to pursue in the things that you obtain and then in the things that you collect. And you raise your status and you try to improve your life. But the more you raise your status and try to improve your life, the drier your soul becomes. And then the discipline of God comes into your life. And pain comes into your life. And hardship comes into your life. And when we start talking about joy, you say, in your mind and in your heart, I've tried that, I've pursued joy, and I came up bankrupt. So don't talk to me about joy. This morning, what we're going to see in the life of David, a king after God's own heart, was a time in his life in which he sought joy by a worldly means. We're going to see in the life of David a time and a season in which he encountered profound hardship and profound brokenness, an absence of joy that was the result of his own sin and the discipline of God. But in this season, what we're going to see is what David learned about joy that now we can apply to our lives, whether we are because of a brokenness that's out there or a brokenness that is in here. So if you have your Bibles, would you go ahead and turn with me now to Psalm 30. To Psalm 30. When you get to Psalm 30, if you would, stand with me as we read God's Word together. Psalms is going to be right in the middle of your Bible. You can probably just break it open and and fall right there to to Psalms. Psalms is the the songbook of the Scriptures. So you'll see there, it tells us right out of the gate that this is a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. Verse 1 says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. Oh Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. So you'll notice there that it says that this psalm was written at the dedication of the temple. And that gives us a particular setting, a particular context that this psalm was given to us. And it may even strike you strange. If you're a bit of a a student of the Old Testament, a scholar of the Old Testament, it should strike you a bit strange when David writes a psalm that is at the dedication of the temple because we know that David did not build the temple. God would not allow David to build the temple. And yet here we are reading a psalm that is said to be set right there in the midst of the dedication of the temple. So how is that? You see where we find the setting for this psalm, the context for this psalm is back in 2 Samuel verse chapter 24. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, David is coming to the end of his life. David is coming to the end of what has been a successful, flourishing reign in Israel. He has brought Israel to heights that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob could not have even dreamed of. Now Israel is the mightiest nation that is is on the face of the earth. They are filled with prosperity. They are flourishing. They have squashed their enemies. They have conquered their foes. And now all that had come against them, all that had come against David, had to acknowledge that they were not even a threat to him. And so David does what a lot of people do at the end of his life. David comes to the end of his life and he wants to look back over the course that had been set for him and he wants to be able to kind of revel in some of his accomplishments. He looks back and he wants to be able to delight in what God has done and what, what He has been privileged to be able to accomplish. He wants to kind of sit on his throne, look back over his reign and say, "Look, look everyone, how great a king am I." I have overseen the conquering of our enemies. I have overseen the building up of our military. I have overseen the slaying of the giants. I have overseen the conquest of the Philistines. I have overseen the unification of Israel. I have overseen the expansion of her borders. I have overseen the building of the palace. I have overseen it. And so what David does is he, he calls for a census, a census of his military. He's going to have the world, he's going to have his people count up the military so that he can put it on display for the world. His military comes in at over a million strong. And that's including mighty men that the scriptures tell us just a chapter before that were so straight, so strong, so mighty, and so fierce that a single one of them could strike down hundreds and even thousands alone. This is the mightiest military on the earth. And the intent of David to take the census of his military it's to not only trumpet that he has brought prosperity to Israel, but at the same time to show that the prosperity that he has brought, the flourishing that he has brought to the people of God is there to stay. It is secure because... Who can come against his military? Who can come up against a general as great as David? Who can come and threaten his kingdom? No, it will not stand. It will not be not only Israel are you prospering, but your prosperity is now secure. Your prosperity in the future is assured because I am a great king. And so he sends out and he takes his census and God Detests the census. God detests. The census. God detests the self-aggrandizement of David. God detests the desire in his heart to trumpet the wonder of his reign. God detests the desire in David to exalt himself and to be praised by his people and to be praised by the other nations and to be held up on a pedestal. God sees what is in David's heart. He sees what is behind the census and he detests it. And so God declares to David that judgment will come against Israel, that he is going to bring judgment against his reign. That the angel of the Lord will lift its sword against Israel. And lifting his sword against Israel, that Israel will know who her true king is. And so the Lord offers three alternatives in or th- three options in judgment to David. The first option that he, that he offers is that they would have three years of famine. The second option that he offers is that they would have three months of being overtaken by their enemies. And the third option, the option that David selects, is that they would have three days of pestilence. Three days of pestilence. Three days of a plague, of an illness. And David says, I would rather be in the hands of the judgment of God than to be in the hands of my enemies. Give me the three days of pestilence. And a plague breaks out in all of Israel and 70,000 people are slain. The angel of the Lord having his sword out comes to Jerusalem when the Lord sees the repentance and the sorrow in David and he holds up his hand to the angel and the Lord in his mercy and by his grace against the expectation and anticipation of David has the angel of the Lord put his sword back in its sheath. And This is the setting of the song we're singing here. This is the setting of Psalm 30 and all that is happening in the backdrop. He says there that that I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. I cried out to you for help and you have healed me, O Lord. You have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. The word that he uses there for healed, it teaches us something about what happened in this time. The word there for healed is used overwhelmingly throughout the the Old Testament to talk about being healed, not in a spiritual sense so much as in a literal physical sense, being healed from an illness, being healed from something that you thought was terminal. So what does that tell us? that David was not excused from the plague of Israel and David was not, was not on the outside looking in at his nation's pestilence. Rather, David himself was afflicted with the disease that had come against his people. That David was sick. And David even believed himself to be going onto the verge of death and likely to die. That's why he says, you delivered me from Sheol. Sheol is the pit of death. It is the place of the dead for the Israelite people. And David believed that he was headed there. He believed that he would be counted among the 70,000 as the angel of the Lord and the judgment of God and the wrath of God descended upon the people of God. He says, I was going to the place of the dead. I had sunk myself down into the pit and you, oh Lord, you brought me out. You delivered me by your grace and by your mercy. I was going to die and I should have died and yet you have been far kinder to me than that. And so what we see is that even though David should have died, And even though David deserved the wrath of God, and even though David deserved to go into the grave beside all of his comrades, the Lord's favor and the Lord's grace and the Lord's mercy was exceedingly generous to David. It says that that you you drawn me I will extol you, O oh God, for you have drawn me out. The word drawing out, it, it is the it's to paint a picture in our minds of a bucket in a well. That that you descend, you, you drop the bucket in, and the bucket goes down into the darkness, disappearing where you can't even see it. And it goes, and it's submerged beneath the water, and the bucket is drowning, and the bucket is hopeless, and the bucket sees it has no power in and of itself to raise back up to the surface and to come back to the light. But then there's a person on the other side that draws the bucket out. And the bucket that has been sunk down into the darkness, the, the bucket that is drowning down into the depths, the bucket that is sunk into the pit is drawn out of the pit, drawn out of the darkness, drawn out of the, the drowning water into the light and the air once more so that the bucket can be used by the person that had sunk it. And David says, that is me, O oh Lord. That is me. I had dropped my life down into the pit i had sunk my life down into the depths i was in the dark and i could not see i was beneath the surface and i was drowning and hopeless but lord you you have drawn me up you have drawn me up you have brought me back to the surface you have allowed me to see the light again you have allowed me to breathe once more now oh lord i am a bucket in your hands and able to be used once more so I will praise your name. I will exalt you above all things. I will not pre- pre- uh, present my, p- myself to the people, but oh Lord, I will call on them to praise your name. I will call on them to lift up you. I will call them to exalt you in praise. See, brothers and sisters, David did not deserve deliverance. David did not deserve hope. David did not deserve joy. But God gave it to him anyway. In spite of what he had earned, in spite of what he deserved, in spite of what he had merited, David, by his own admission, had merited the pit. He had merited drowning. He had merited death. And yet, oh, the Lord has brought him to the surface. The Lord has restored light into his life this morning no doubt there is some of you here we start talking about joy you start zoning out and you start zoning out because you would just say i don't deserve it i don't deserve it cody you you don't know what's in my life you don't know the skeletons that are in my closet you start thinking about the affair that you had. And you hear me talk about joy, and you zone out because you say, I am miserable and I deserve my misery. You think about the secret that you're keeping that lonely secret that just you and the darkness of your mind knows about, the one that is sin and that your wife hasn't seen and your kids haven't seen and you haven't confessed to another soul and your soul is drying up and you're parched and you're dying and you're miserable. And what you would say this morning is, I don't need to hear about joy. I am miserable and I have earned my misery. back whenever... You did whatever. And you think over the course of your life, and when you look in yourself in the mirror and you have no joy, whether it's from wasting your time or in an inactive life or being unfaithful to the Lord, you just say, you know, I don't deserve joy. I don't deserve happiness. I don't, I don't, I don't deserve pleasure. I don't, I don't deserve delight. I don't deserve any of those things. I am reaping what I have sown. Brothers and sisters, what we are reminded of by David and in the life of David in Psalm 30 is not not one of us deserve it. Not one of us deserve it. Whether you have lived a life of sexual promiscuity or you have lusted in your heart, whether you have stolen from someone that you love or you have coveted after what your neighbor has, whether you are entrenched in pornography or you're entrenched in gossip, wherever you are and whatever your story is and whatever's in your closet, the truth is, is that not a single one of us deserve joy. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That our God, our King, gives a sincere offer to all peoples of joy, undeserved, un filtered joy, unmerited, unearned joy that God gives you an offer, not what's irregardless of what's in your past, irregardless of what's in your life right now, that the Lord is coming to you as David in all of his pride and David in all of his broken and David on the edge of his deathbed and he comes to you like that and says, here, here is an offer of joy, a sincere offer of joy. And the question that comes for all of us is will you accept it? Will you accept it? Will you submit your life not to your self-leadership anymore? That hasn't worked. Will you submit yourself not to the ways of the world? That hasn't worked. Would you submit yourself not to being beat up every time you look in the mirror? That hasn't worked. But rather, would you devote yourself to the Lord and repent of your ways as David did and come and say, Lord, may I have your offer of joy. May I have your offer of unmerited, undeserved forgiveness, mercy, and grace. Don't zone out this morning. I don't care what you're twisted up in. I don't care how hopeless you believe yourself to be. I don't care what's in your past, what's in your history. I don't care what you're planning to go home to right now. Brothers and sisters, friends, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Take the offer of undeserved joy that you can be pulled up out of the depths, pulled up out of the darkness, pulled up out of the pit, and put on rocky foundations. Put on solid ground. So David calls the saints to praise the Lord with him. He says in verse verse 4, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So David calls on all the saints... The saints are not those who are simply born into Israel. The saints here are those who have appreciated and delighted and entrusted themselves to the grace and the benevolent mercy of God, those who know God's favor the way that David knows God's favor, those who have enjoyed God's promises the way that David has enjoyed God's promises, those who have repented and placed their full well-being in the hands of God the way that David has placed his well-being in the hands of God. And so David is inviting them to celebrate what God has done in their lives and what God has done in his life. David is calling them out to sing praises, to extol the name of this merciful, benevolent, and kind God. And he talks about what he's learned. He talks about what he's learned there. He says, you know, God's anger is never going to outlast his favor. Y'all, let me say that one more time. David learns that the anger of God will never outlast, never outlive, never endure farther than the favor of God. Though the discipline of God had come into his life, Though he was facing hardship, pain, and sorrow over the sin that he had brought, though he was facing difficulty because he had sought his own praise rather than the praises of God, he was leading the people of God astray. He looks back in retrospect. And he says, you know, I thought in that moment when I was sick and when I was throwing up and when I was headed down into the pit, I let it enter into my mind that God's favor has withdrawn from me. But I realize now that though his anger may last for a moment, his favor lasts for a lifetime. That the discipline that I knew, was it in contradiction to the favor of god his the, the discipline that i faced the sorrow and the pain that i endured was it in contradiction to the grace of god no rather it flowed out of the favor of god it flowed out of the grace of God. That the discipline that I knew and the pain that I knew and the hardship that I knew weren't working against God's goodness and working against God's kindness. No, they were coming to me out of God's goodness and out of God's kindness because God was saying to me, I want you to know more of me. I want you to be drawn back into intimate fellowship. I want the David that was writing songs of praise to return. I want the David that was praising my name and dancing. Sing in the streets, to my glory, to return, I want to return to you real and abiding joy. And so he was an invitation, though a painful one. It was a, a, a call of, a, to, to return and a call to new depth and a call to richer worship, though, though it was filled with so much sorrow that the favor of God had not withdrawn for David. No, the favor of God had brought discipline into David's life so that David could know that favor in new depth and new dimension and new hope. You may have an unwelcome guest that comes to your house. The way that David talks about weeping, the way that he talks about sorrow is he, he paints it as the picture of an unwelcome house guest. Maybe you've all had those. We've had them at our house before. He says, weeping may be passing through the town and it may spend the night at your house. Sorrow may come and it may sleep in the back room. Sorrow may come and it may show up at your dinner table. Weeping and crying and mourning will be realizations in the Christian life. They will not be avoidable. Though weeping sleeps through the night, and though weeping comes to your dinner table, and though weeping shows up as an unwelcome guest at your house, joy is coming in the morning. Joy is coming in the morning. You may weep because of the the brokenness that is in you. You may weep because you have sinned against God and you have brought hardship into your life and you have invited the discipline of God to invite you back into fellowship with Him. You may groan and cry and weep because of the sin that is in your life so that the Lord, by His benevolent mercy, calls you back into intimate fellowship. Or you may weep because of the pain that is out there, the pain that is the result of living in a broken world. And you may know depression with no explanation you may know sorrow with no explanation you may be living a life that is faithful to the lord and everybody turn against you you may train your children up in the way that they should go and them still rebel against you and against the lord now sorrow is going to come to your house Weeping is going to show up as, as an unwelcome guest. And it's going to spend the night. It's going to tarry through the night. But Christian, Christian, joy is coming in the morning. Those who know the grace of God, those who know the favor of God, those who know the kindness of God, the weeping may tarry the night. Joy comes in the morning. Christians won't escape crying in this world. Not a single one of you will escape pain. If you make it out of the womb and into this oxygen, you're going to face loss. You're going to face hardship. If you walk with the Lord long enough, you will face discipline. And you will face discipline not because you have lost the favor of God. You will face discipline because you have been brought as a child of God into His house. You will be disciplined by the Father as the Father disciplines the Son out of love for you. Though crying comes to the house of every Christian, and though crying is known by every believer and everyone who has enjoyed the grace of God, Christians don't cry the way the world cries. Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians, doesn't he? He says, you know, we grieve, but we don't grieve the way the world grieves. And we can look at Psalm 30, brothers and sisters, and we can see that, yes, we will weep, and we will cry, and we will know sorrow, and we will know brokenness, and we will know pain. But brothers and sisters, though we cry, we don't cry like the world. We cry with hope. We cry with hope we cry with an assurance and a promise that though sorrow is in our home and though weeping has found our house and though tears are streaming into our pillow, that the morning is coming, that joy will return, that we will be able to enjoy the kindness of God. In fact, what we begin to learn is that not a single tear of ours will be wasted not a single second of sorrow will be spoiled. That the deeper pain that we realize in our lives will not just come to our demise, rather the deeper pain that we know in our lives will lead us into deeper praise. I believe we see in Psalm 30 a song in David's heart that has greater depth and greater dimension than a psalm that we read when he was yet a boy. As he praised God, having slain the lion and slain the bear and slain the giant. Yes, yes, that was was surely sincere praise and sincere worship. But at the end of his life, having taken the knots on his head and endured the scars of the brokenness of the world, now he looks back and he says, even through my tears, even on the face of death, I will extol you, O Lord. I will praise your name deeper, that deeper pain brings you into deeper praise, that you can know theologically that the sovereignty of God is true. You can read it in a book. You can read it in the Bible. You can love it. You can treasure it. But one day, one day, when all of a sudden your baby dies, when all of a sudden your mom or dad goes to be with the Lord, when all of a sudden you face the loss of a job in your life, the sovereignty of God stops being a theological truth and a theological principle, and it becomes the abiding hope of your life. You praise God. Lord, I can't see the other side of this and I can't see the other side of this pain, but I know, I know you work together all things for the good of those who love you. I know that my sorrow and my pain will be servants in the hands of a sovereign God. You can know and you can enjoy and you can be curious about the end times. And and, and as a Christian, you can read it in the scriptures, and you can be excited about it. But then one day, when you face brokenness in your marriage, brokenness in your family, brokenness with your kids, when when you all of a sudden fail at something that you didn't think you could fail at, And tears just stream down your face and you don't think that there's ever gonna be an end to those tears. Then the the return of Christ, the coming of Christ, the day in which the last tear will be wiped from your face, that day means more than, than politics and more than charts and dragons and Bitcoin. No, it is the abiding hope that you have in Christ. Deeper pain has led you to deeper praise. You may know of the discipline of God, and you may know of the hardship that that brings into your life, and you may dread it, but one day as you look back in retrospect on the backside of God's discipline and on the backside of God's hard hand that has come against your life, you will lift up your hands and praise His name because He has brought you into intimate fellowship with Himself. He has restored you. Brothers and sisters, deeper pain leads to deeper worship so that Christians might sing through the tears. So that we might come together and worship and praise our God regardless of what is happening in the circumstances of our life, regardless of what we're going to go home to when we leave. Because we don't cry the way the world cries. We cry with hope. We cry with certainty. We cry in the eyes of sovereignty. David gives us insight into what is happening, what led him here in verses six and seven. It says, as for me, I said in my prosperity, the the Net Bible translates it, I said in my self-confidence, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. David says, you want to know what happened for me? You want want to know what happened in my life? I became sure of myself. I became certain in me. I became filled with self-exaltation and self-sufficiency and self-confidence. And being full of myself, being full of myself, I was then far from God. You see, brothers and sisters, you can't be full of you and close to God at the same time. And that works against the me generation, And that works against the self-promotion that our world requires. And that works against everything that we we teach our children and and, and the world teaches our children. This, This works against touchdown dances. This works against me. It works against what I want and what I want others to believe about me. And instead, it is constantly deflecting from me toward him, looking against who I am. You'll notice that there is a profound shift in pronouns, right? Y'all probably don't get as excited about pronouns as I do. I'm kind of a dork that way. I get pretty fired up about pronouns. But in verses, in verses 6 and 7, you'll notice that there is a profound shift in pronouns. It almost rhymes. Verse 6, he says, As for me, I said, in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. You see what David's saying? It's about me. This kingdom isn't going anywhere. This kingdom cannot fail, will not fail. Look at how well I've built it. Look at how surely I've led it. Look at the mighty military that I've brought about. I did this. I brought flourishing. I brought security. I brought it about. But then verse 7, what does he say? By your favor, O Lord. This is his realization. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand. Mountain is a, is a way of him saying kingdom. You made my kingdom stand strong. You hid your face. And when he comes when he says, I was dismayed. I was dismayed. He says, What I come to realize is though I thought I had built a great kingdom, though I thought I had built a great military, though I believed I had set us up for success, what I realized is that it wasn't me at all. It was the favor of God, the kindness of God, the protection of God, the provision of God, the deliverance of God. It was God that had done it all. We have David here acknowledging a loss of perspective in his life. David had gotten an entitlement mentality. Does that sound familiar? David had developed an entitlement mentality that said, because of who I am, because of what I've done, I deserve all of these other things. I deserve prosperity. I deserve well-being. I deserve praise and exalt. I deserve all of this because of who I am and what I've done. And when you have an entitlement mentality, when, when, when it does go well with you and you do enjoy prosperity and you do enjoy protection, then you just say, well, I'm just getting what I deserve. And there is no thankfulness in your life and there is no praise in your life. And when you have an entitlement mentality and you believe that God owes you prosperity and God owes you flourishing and God owes you well-being, all of a sudden when you're unwell, all of a sudden when the, when the bank account doesn't balance just right, It isn't a a result of brokenness. It is a result of God's unfaithfulness to you. And so David looks back and he thinks, how could I I have been so foolish? How could I have fallen away? And what David realizes is that David was disciplined for believing in himself. David was disciplined for believing in himself. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing more anti-gospel There is nothing more anti-grace than self-belief. And yet about May, when the graduation speeches start, every one of them, just about, without fail, will say what? Just believe in yourself. And it will all go well with you. Just believe in yourself and your life will become what you want it to become. Just believe in yourself and your grades will be great. Just believe in yourself and your marriage will be exciting. Just believe in yourself and your life will be filled with romance and prosperity and well-being. As if we are all entitled to those things by the nature of who we are. No, brothers and sisters, we are entitled to death. We are entitled to the judgment of God apart from the grace of God. God was bringing David back out of the fountain of the world, out of a life of self-belief to the fountain of abiding joy, to the fountain of durable joy because what God was teaching David was that self-belief leads to superficial and shallow joy that has no foundation to allow it to last. You want joy that lasts and you want joy that's durable. Don't look within yourself. Don't look at what you've achieved. Don't look at what you've collected. No, 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 brothers and sisters, look to God of grace. Look to the God of kindness. Look to the Almighty that sustains you through every storm. Look to the Almighty that will allow your house to stand no matter what winds beat against it, no matter what rains fall upon it. Let your house be built not upon a rock of self-confidence and self-assurance and self-sufficiency. No, let your life Be built, let your family be built, let your faith be built upon the Almighty Himself. And it will be as lasting and durable as he is. It won't be superficial, shallow, rusting, rotting joy. It will be abiding, lasting, non-circumstantial joy. And so David returns. He repents and he returns. It says, to the Lord I cry. In verse eight, it's the second time that David himself says that he has cried. He says, I cry out. I cry out and I say, Lord, Lord, would you see me? Lord, I'd throw myself on your mercy. You would receive me back. And David in his repentance, David in his desire to return, to return to fellowship with God is not rebuffed. He is not turned away. away. No, he is received. And what happens in his life is that all of it transforms his joy, transforms his praise. Remember, that's what David was out after in the beginning, right? David took the census so that he would be praised. David took the the census so that he could enjoy his spoils. David took the census so that he could appreciate all that he had collected. David took the census so that praise would come. But God, God through discipline, God through sorrow, God through pain, transforms the, the praise of David. David's seeking after self-praise had brought mourning. David seeking after self-exaltation had brought, had brought hardship and pain and tears. But now, now, seeking after and returning to the Lord, returning to fellowship, returning to that which isn't superficial, but sovereign and everlasting, his weeping is turned to joy. His grief is turned to gladness. His sorrow is turned to dancing. A transformation of his praise. This morning, I don't know exactly what's going on in your life. I don't know if you feel entitled or if you feel unworthy. I don't know if you feel like joy is just around the corner or if joy is an impossible pipe dream for you. But this morning, what I call on you to do is to let go of yourself And let go of your self-belief and let let go of your self-confidence and instead place all of your belief, all of your confidence, all of your hope in the hands of a sovereign God. And if, if, if you will, if you will, what you will find is that your sorrow will become a servant in the hands of a sovereign God. Let's pray together.